Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2150 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 18 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. As we look at this passage, and I appreciate you being here today as we continue our series on the good news according to John the Apostle. Now last week we saw that the religious leaders in Jerusalem had had enough of Jesus and his teaching in the temple. We saw that Jesus was in the lion's den. And today our scripture is John chapters 8, verses 1 through 11, and it's starting on page 1661 in your pew Bibles, if you want to follow along today. Now John 8 contains one of the most recognizable stories in the entire Bible, the woman that was caught in adultery and brought before Jesus. It's a powerful story. And we resonate with that story ourselves if we've ever felt condemned or ashamed or exposed as a failure. However, before we look into this account, I want to address a couple of items here. You'll notice even in the Pew Bible, most newer Bibles have a note before this text. It says, in the most ancient Greek manuscripts, do not include John chapter 7, verse 53, and chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And this is a troubling to some people because they feel that these versions are trying to be edited of what the Bible was or engaged in what's called revisionist history. However, that's not what, is what, not what is happening at all. These scholars are not guilty of disrespect of God's Word. They're actually making sure they respect God's Word and they treat it as such. Now, as we've had more modern archaeological studies and it continues to unearth more copies of the Bible, copies that are earlier manuscripts than what they had, say, when the King James Version was, was um, first written, we have much newer or much older manuscripts now. And generally speaking, the older the manuscripts, the closer it gets to the Word of God that was actually inspired, that penned by the original authors. And in this case, many of the older manuscripts are missing this portion of the, the John chapter 8, indicated that the story may have been added later. However, there are other earlier manuscripts that do include this story in the Gospel of John. Therefore, they're just telling us this wasn't in the oldest manuscripts we had, but it was included so that we would be aware of that. But we're not to hold this text up above any other text or below any other text because these verses are part of the gospel account. We know it was an early account in Jesus' ministry and certainly seems to be consistent with the character that we see Jesus teaching and preaching and also consistent with John's gospel. So since it is consistent with the rest of Scripture, we do not have any reason to discount this story other than the fact that it might not have been in the very earliest manuscripts that we have, but that's not the reason to discount it. It is part of the inspired Word of God. 
So though it's always important to be cautious as we look at various versions, our approach to this is that it's genuine history and not a later fabrication. So I'm going to start in John chapter 7, verse 53, and then read chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And if the setting the scene here, last week we saw Jesus was in the temple, and he was teaching, and what he was teaching really riled the religious teachers in Jerusalem that day. They wanted to kill him. They sent out the guards to try to capture him and bring him in so they could kill him. When he came to town, they said, where is he? So that we might capture him. So that's the setting. In verse 53, it says, then they all went home. So supposedly at this point, it was the end of the day. And then, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and Jesus spent many a night in the Mount of Olives. He stayed there. It's across this valley from the city of Jerusalem. And then goes on to say, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? John inserts here, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. And they kept questioning him. He then straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who began to, hear, began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman standing there with him. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So we have some questions here about the details of this story, because in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, it reads, if a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you must purge Israel of such evil. Now, one of the Jewish legal expert procedures states this, the actual physical movements of this couple that was caught must be capable of no other explanation. It wasn't a light thing that they did. There must be witnesses, more than one witness. One person can't go in and say, well, I saw them doing this and that. But it had to be more than one witness. It had to be at the exact same time in the presence of each other. So those witnesses had to witness this act at the same time with they were, when they were with each other. And their, their disposition or their deposition was exactly the same in every respect before you could bring this accusation to say these, this couple needs to be stoned. So there was a lot of safeguards in there. It wasn't something frivolous. So three questions come to my mind. First, where was the man who was involved in this adulterous relationship? Scripture is clear both parties were to be killed. If only one party were brought before the court, it would be the man who was brought before the court who might have taken advantage of the woman and forced her into a relationship that she did not really desire. 
something is really fishy here. Like my dad used to say, it stinks to high heaven because just something's not right here. Second, how is it that these people were caught? This couple was caught and they only brought the woman. If they were in a room in a house, the witnesses would have been looking or peeping through the window. Both at the same time, multiple witnesses had to be looking in that window at the same time. This leads us to believe that this whole thing was a charade, a setup. Perhaps a woman, though, was an unknowing pawn who was seduced by a man. The man had to be part of the plot designed to get Jesus trapped, and that's what their ultimate um, desire was. If that was the case, the people behind the plot were actually worse than the woman accused of adultery. Now, in our permissive age, one might think, this punishment is quite excessively harsh. However, God established penalties in the law because marriage was meant to be the very foundation of the family and the home. And any violation of that marriage was weakening that family and all of society. Therefore, God takes marital faithfulness very seriously. But thirdly, what did Jesus write in the dirt? Now, there's as many opinions about this as there are people. We all have to speculate on what would he have written in the dirt that caused these men to leave? It's only a guess, so it's probably a waste of time to speculate, but give me a moment, I'll speculate a little bit any. I think he probably wrote their names down, each of the men's names down, and then some flagrant sin that he knew about them. And as they saw what he wrote on the ground, they realized that Jesus knew their very hearts. The man may have been plot of, uh, part of the plot, but we have to see here that Jesus wrote on the ground to buy a little bit of time and convict these men of what their deeds were. It took him time to allow these words to sink into their hearts to realize Jesus knows more than he ought to know about my life. Let's look at what happened and then draw some principles. And I hope this will help us. So if you look in your bulletin insert on the side, it says, what is he saying to you? I have three principles that we're going to go through today. First of all, check yourself before condemning others. Now, these religious leaders believed that they had Jesus in a no-win situation. If Jesus said, let her go, they would, he would be castigated because he did not follow Moses' law. On the other hand, if he sided with the execution, her execution, he would be undermining his very reputation as a savior to those who are broken hurting. This would alienate the very people that Jesus was reaching out to most, that were being drawn to him. It also might put him in the sights of the Roman government if he authorized an execution because only the Roman government had the right to execute individuals in their society. As on so, with so many other occasions, the wisdom of Jesus was so much superior to the schemes of men. Jesus wrote in the dirt as if he was ignoring them entirely. He didn't respond to them. All he did was bent down and wrote something in the dirt. Wish he would have had a camera that day so we could see what it was, but that's not what's important with this lesson. But because they kept pushing, he responded. 
let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. The principle is simple, and we need to examine our own lives before we ever condemn someone else of sin. Jesus said the very same thing in Matthew chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. And if you remember, a year ago, when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount series, we went through this passage. It says, For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging others is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about that speck that is in your friend's eye when you have this log in front of your own eye? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past that log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of that log in your eye. Then you will be able to see well enough to deal with that speck in your friend's eye. Now, some have taken these words to mean that Jesus, of Jesus to mean that we shouldn't condemn anyone's behavior as being sinful or wrong. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Throughout the Bible, it is clear that the Lord wants us to be holy and not compromise with evil. He is clear that calling some behavior is sin. So Jesus is not condemning judgments. In fact, in the same passage a little later, he commands us to exhort those who are not living by godly standards. What he's condemning here is a hypocrisy of having flagrant sin in your own life, ignoring that and pointing out sin in other people's life. And it's so easy for us to do. And as believers, we're not called, or we're not to call what God calls evil. We're not to call it good. However, we should not be eager to point out the transgressions of others, but instead the transforming grace of God. We do this by extending kindness and personal care, even when we may oppose somebody else's behavior and we think that they're living in a manner that's not in line with God's word, we're not condemned and we're supposed to reach out to them with compassion and care. That transforming grace of God. Unfortunately, the church has gotten a bad reputation in the non-Christian world. They have watched Christians condemn the various, their various actions and behaviors. They even condemn each other. And we do so too often with hatred that's mean and uncaring, more like bullies than ambassadors of Christ that we're trying to love and win those who are lost. Now, if you ask a non-Christian friend to describe a typical Christian, they may describe one who stands in judgment over them, or people who are stern or sour, have a sour disposition. God does not call us to be the policemen of the world. He calls us to be ambassadors of his grace. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of their sin. It is our job to show people a better way to live. It is interesting that after the challenge of Jesus, the older people slipped away first, those older men. Perhaps it's a realize that Jesus had defeated them. To throw the first stone at this point, they would have to admit that they were completely sinless, an accusation they dare not make. It would be an act of blasphemy for them to do so. The older men knew that there was no sense looking for a loophole because Jesus had them dead to rights. They conceded defeat. 
And then the younger people or the younger men quickly followed. The second principle we want to follow today is understanding that Jesus forgives you and he forgives others. Harboring sin in your life is like a chain around your neck or shoulders and being shackled by a chain. We sang the song, Amazing Grace, my chains are gone. But sin in your life, and I'm going to leave this on for a few minutes, so don't worry that it's choking me or anything. But the sin that we have in our lives is like a chain around our shoulders and our neck. After the mob dissipated, there was Jesus with his disciples, maybe, that were left there, and this lone woman. Surely, she was embarrassed and ashamed of her actions. Jesus asked if anyone was there to condemn her, and she replied, there was no one. Then he said something amazing. Neither do I condemn you. He extended grace and forgiveness to this broken woman who perhaps was headed down a very destructive path. And I suspect his words and his look of kindness and compassion in his eyes changed her life forever. The God who wrote the law had every reason to condemn this woman as a sinner. He was the author of the word of God. The Holy One was well within his rights and authority to condemn this lady to hell. But he did not. He gave her a new start. Forgiveness is powerful. It's something taking, like somebody would have their foot on your neck, stifling your breath, but then taking it off and allowing you to breathe again, and then wrapping their arms around you in a hug for forgiveness. It's like a cancer doctor coming into the room and saying, we got it all. You're free. It's like Anna this week. When Desney and Bob were informed by the doctors that indeed that growth that was in Anna's neck that they extracted was not even cancer. We got it all out. It's like being on death row and then pardoned because your sentence is commuted and is completely abolished, like you've never even convict, were convicted of that crime. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Ponder the incredible words. No condemnation. Nothing. That is held against us again. The worst of our sins is pardoned because of Christ and if you'll see on your other side of your bulletin insert, I've listed those verses, and at the top I've put in bold, no condemnation. For those who belong to Christ Jesus, the woman standing before Jesus had those life-altering words lifted from her. She was facing that death of stoning. But Jesus took that chain off her and said, neither do I condemn you. Your sin is completely gone. She had a fresh start. And here's a hard part for us. We're told to forgive as he has forgiven us. Forgiveness is letting go of that hurt. It's determining the offense committed will no longer be a barrier in our relationship with another person. It's not letting go or saying that 
well, if I don't, if I forgive them, they'll be getting away with it. It's putting that hurt that we have from other people into God's hands so he can address it appropriately. We, when we forgive, we stop using past failures to club and beat someone else whenever there is a conflict. So easy to do in marriages where you harbor these feelings and every time something comes up, you just beat your spouse with those feelings. You've got to let it go. It's not so much that we forget what has happened. We can't completely put it out of our mind that we choose not to remember it. Instead, we choose to turn it over to God. And it's no longer an issue between us and that other person. Forgiveness is one of the costliest gifts that we can give to another person. Yet it's a life-changing act of love. Jesus forgave this woman, and he asked us to forgive each other. We are never showing more faith that we have in God than when we dare entrust our hurts of other people to the Lord, where we replace our anger and hurt with grace, the same grace that has been extended to us. When we are given the privilege to pass on that grace we have received, it is our chance to demonstrate that we trust him with our hurts. We take those chains that are of unforgiveness that are around our neck and we let them go so that we can be free. Our chains are gone. We've been set free. And then our third principle today is Jesus called her, that woman, and he calls us to new life. Jesus said to this woman, go now and leave your life of sin. Now, these words are important. Jesus does not deny that this, uh, this woman sinned. She says, well, it really didn't happen. She, he never said that. And he didn't say that it did not matter that she sinned. It is sin, and sin destroys our lives. We need to see the destructive power of sin before ever appreciating that free gift of grace that God has given us, that grace and forgiveness. Jesus set this woman free from her condemnation and encouraged her to head in a new direction. Our new life in Christ is turning around and heading in a new direction. He faced sin rather than trying to redefine it. Like so often happens today, we try to redefine our sin and the sin of others. Calling sin virtue is like painting the walls of a prison cell. It may make it a little bit prettier, but you're still in prison. And you can't change the fact by painting the walls. In our Romans chapter 8 passage, Paul says we're freed from the power of sin that leads to death. The goal of God's forgiveness is not for us to be able to sin without feeling the hurt. It is so we can pursue holiness and godliness. So we are free to move into a new direction, a direction that we should have been going all along from the beginning. God wipes our slate clean so that we can travel in that different direction. He died for our sins to break that power of sin over us. The person who rejoices in forgiveness and then continues to willfully sin again and again should question whether they fully understand that good news that we received of the gospel. On the other hand, the person who goes back to beating themselves up for their failures does not understand that the real gift that the Lord has given them. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's taken the chains and completely gotten rid of them. They're no longer to weigh us down 
We can't beat ourselves up for past sins. God has forgiven us of those. We can't have a spirit of unforgiveness because we're to forgive as God has forgiven us. Jesus opened the door to this woman to a new life. And I want to believe that she embraced that opportunity that she was given. And the real takeaway of this message is the realization that this woman is us. We are this woman. Her story is our story. We deserve condemnation. We have often ignored the commands of God and have disregarded his character. Our hearts have become hard at times and our minds have become dull. But when we take an objective look at our lives, it should stagger us to realize that we can no longer justify our sins. Yet we as humans, we have such an uncanny ability to justify anything we choose to do as, well, it's not that bad. But sin is bad and it's destructful and those hurtful choices do impact our lives. We can't say it's not that bad and we can't say, well, everybody else is doing it. And be like our children when we're raising them saying, well, so-and-so is doing it. The old saying, you know, they jumped off a cliff, would you do that also? We can't do it as adults either. For most of us, we're haunted by our past mistakes and failures. We carry scars that make us hesitant in our lives to go forward. Somehow people have self-esteem issue and feel shame that the world is looking at us and talking about us. Some stay away from church in any hope of having a relationship with Christ because they believe that they're just too far gone to ever experience that grace, that salvation. The truth is, though, people that realize that they're close to being too far gone are closer to a new life than these Pharisees and these religious leaders who condemned this woman and wanted to condemn Christ. They were religious, so they believed that they deserved eternal life. They saw the sin of others, but they could not see the sin in themselves. If you recognize your need to forgiveness, you have met that very first qualification. If you fulfill the second requirement that you regret and mourn over your own sin, that's called repentance. You fulfilled that second qualification. The chains are gone. Next, you need to see that while others might point their bony finger at you in anger and condemnation, Jesus holds his arms open wide for you. He does not say that sin doesn't matter because it does. Sin destroys people. It keeps them away from a genuine, close relationship with God. But if you run to him with open arms, he will say to you, as he said to this woman, then neither do I condemn you. He has paid the price so you can be forgiven and free from that enslaving power of sin. And then you can have an opportunity to new life, to walk with him, to be indwelt with that Holy Spirit of God, and to know that you have peace in heaven or a place in heaven reserved for you. We must believe his voice more than we believe the voice of the crowds that are constantly shouting at us. We need to believe in him more than we believe those voices in our head or the disappointments of Satan's accusations against us. We need to hear and embrace his voice, the one who reigns supreme and loves us more than we can ever comprehend. Listen carefully. 
We are set free from the chains that bind, bind us up, that hold us down. We are set free. We no longer are defined by our failures, but by his mercy and grace. And I'm sure that's something that we all need to long for and need to hear. And because it seems too good to be true, but that's what grace looks like. It's like that lady who was brought before Jesus, and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I hope this message for us has tempted us to realize that if we ever point our bony finger and are quick to condemn others, that we realize that Jesus said, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Remember the words of Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. The standard that you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. We have a choice. We can be agents of con condemnation or ancient agents of grace. We can beat others up or we can pick them up from the ground and help them to get back on their feet. We can adopt a posture of superiority or we can proceed as one who has, re has received undeserved mercy. We can be like those teachers of the law before Jesus that day or pass on grace that has been extended to us. Forgiveness, both for us and extending forgiveness to others is not easy. But it's easier when we remember that magnitude of grace that we have received. We must be willing, willing to forgive one another. We must be willing to appreciate that grace that has been given to us. If we're unable to forgive others, then we've not been forgiven ourselves. If we judge others, we will be judged by that same standard. Now, we can dismiss the story and say, well, it wasn't found in the earliest manuscript, so I'm not sure that this is a viable story. But we cannot dismiss the message because it's repeated throughout all of God's word. And it's not just a story about this woman who was caught in sin. It's our story. And this is what Jesus, John wants to, to get across to us. Jesus is teaching that this is just an example of the grace that's been extended to us. It's a picture of amazing grace that has set us free from condemnation and frees, a, frees us so that we can extend grace to everyone else that we come in contact with. And I'll refer you back to your bulletin insert and answer the question, what is he saying to you? First, he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. But then when we realize that we do have sin, then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And that's the lesson from today's passage. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Our chains are gone. They're no longer restraining us. And next Sunday, we're going to return to the temple once again as Jesus continues to teach and we'll discover the reasons that those religious leaders rejected Christ. So I'd ask you, encourage you to read John chapter 8, verses 12 through 59 for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for this time where we can learn of your compassion for this woman who was brought before you unjustly because it wasn't as your law prescribed, but that you are willing to forgive this woman regardless.
and say to her, neither do I condemn you. And we know that you've said the same thing to us. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus, and we praise your holy name for this. Help us to take this grace that has been extended to us, this condemnation that you've lifted from us, these chains that you've broken from us, Father, and offer that grace to everyone we come in contact, even when they sin against us or hurt us in some way, Father, that we might be willing to forgive them, extend them grace as you have extended it to us, Father. That amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.